Tonight we're going to continue through our series, and so if you guys have been following along with us and tracking with us, we've been doing a series called Does the Bible? And so tonight uh, we're going to look at another uh, topic about the Bible, and, and kind of really what we're looking for in this series is to, is to gain a biblical perspective as Christians, to be challenged in the way that we think. If you, if you really wanted to think about it um, in, in where you're being influenced in your life, there are so many influences happening that you don't even realize it, that there are some dogmatic things that are going on in your life whether you like it or not, that you're being, you're being um, transformed into the way that we do social media, to the way that we interact with people, the, the things that we hear on the radio, the music that we listen to, all those things are somewhat forming us into something else. And so I love what the Word of God does, though. The Word of God shapes us differently than the world, and it shapes us into being like Jesus. And so one of the, one of the series uh, passages that we have been looking at is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. And so um, because I like liturgical things, I'm going to do something um, here. We're going to put it on the, 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 the screen here, and we're, we're going to just recite this together. And so hopefully I go at a good pace but we're going to recite it together. So on a count of three, we're going to begin. One, two, three. And it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Praise God. This is the word of the Lord. And when we hear the word of the Lord, we can say in response to what we just read, Thanks be to God. With this scripture before us, knowing that God has given us all that we need for life and godliness, let us now look at our topic tonight. And so our topic tonight is, does the Bible have anything to say about conflict resolution? And you're like, of course it does, right? But unfortunately, even though we as Christians know that the Bible says something about the conflicts that we face in relationships, this, this interpersonal conflict that we have with others is one of the most destructive problems within the church. Actually, I want to restate that. It's probably one of the most destructive problems within the world, within the family institution, right? With people we work with, with our bosses or whoever, Specifically, tonight we're going to talk about those relationships that are broken and severed within the body of Christ. Now, although some conflicts are unavoidable, right? When, when we know someone is going to harm themselves or they're going to harm others, we step in. Those are unavoidable. Or maybe for the Christian, when someone is trying to teach your friend something heretical, you're stepping in to save them from wandering away from the truth. Uh, most of the time, our relational conflicts stem from minor disagreements, though. They're not major things. They cause tension to arise within a relationship, and sometimes they're even born with, from a selfishness or a fleshly-type ambition that has caused us to think illy of an, ill of another person. Other times, we're at odds with people just because we are completely different from them, right? We just don't even know why. 
But there's just something about that person that is so different from us that we just can't seem to get along. Everyone in this room, regardless if you, start, you started the conflict or not, has had a relational conflict or has had differences with some other person. By a show of hands, how many of you have had beef with another person? Okay, so most of you. Other people, you're lying. Okay. How about, how about this? How many of you have ever had a conflict with another Christian? Okay, so again, some of you are being truthful, others are lying. But to be open with you and to be first to admit it, guess what? I don't always get along with people. We don't always get along with others. I know it's hard to believe, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm a very warm person, right? So likable that how could I ever hate anyone? But to be, to be open with you, people are irritating. People are irritating. And guess what? I'm one of them. I'm I'm irritating. I'm sure that I've irritated quite a few people in my life. And because of this, just like you, I've said things to people and I've regretted it. I've used my words to tear people down instead of, of building them up. And afterwards, guess what? I go home and I'm ashamed. I'm like, man, did I really stick my foot in my mouth when I said that thing to that person? thinking of how unloving and unkind and short-tempered I was towards someone that the Lord loves. On the other side of the coin, I've been mistreated, right? I, I've been the one who has irritated someone, and they lashed out at me. They said unkind things to me. Sometimes I don't even know why, right? People are people at best. Yet the issue I want to bring up is not so much about the frequency of such conflicts, because we know that there could be a lot. I'm sure there's even conflicts that are going on right now within our own community. But rather, I, I want to think about the unwillingness that we have to resolve the conflict. We have something within our lives that is not willing to resolve something against another person. When we're at odds with another Christian, we would rather hold resentment in our heart, right? Being reluctant to forgive and to seek restoration. We would rather sit on the other side of the sanctuary and worship God, pretending like nothing is happening, or leave a church. Some people, they would rather just leave a church. I don't really like that person. I'm just going to change churches. I'm just going to drive a few more miles down the street so I don't have to see that person again. Despite how we feel justified in the way that we acted or the actions or how we treated another person, the Bible teaches us that we, as believers, are to res restore or to be restored to others. We are to forgive because we have been forgiven. Not only does the Word of God encourage us to do so, but it also gives us instructions on how to address such issues in our lives. And so one of the greatest passages that we find within the Bible about conflict resolution is Matthew 18, right? And so if you have your Bible with you, turn to Matthew 18, and we're going to read verses 15 through 20 together. And then it will be on the screen, I believe. Now here Jesus is teaching his disciples how to resolve a conflict with someone who has sinned against them. Who has, who has openly sinned against them. 
This is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 15. It says, If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he is listening to you, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, see that there's a second listening to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The first step that we take to resolve conflict in our life is to go and speak to the person in private. Everything that I'm going to tell you tonight is very practical Christianity. But it's so needed for us to be reminded of the truth of God's word. Again, Jesus says, if, you're, if your brother sins against you, go to him uh, and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I would like to say that in this passage here, identifying the conflict is where we must begin in order to resolve it. Right? Here in this passage, it seems to imply that not all conflicts need to be confronted. You're like, what do you mean? Well, some of you need to hear this. As I said before, sometimes we are selfishly or fleshly at odds with another person because we are merely different. Sociologically, demographically, ethnically, we're different, right? And when it's a conflict about differences, meaning because that person is just distinct from you, and perhaps your personality clashes, sometimes it does, we mustn't go with our first impulse for confrontation, right? That impulse that tells you to go to them and, and tell them whatever's on your mind. The impulse that says you go up to them and say, every time you smile, I get so annoyed. There's one person that laughed. Well, there you go. <laughs> that was for you. Maybe instead of confronting them, we need to confront ourselves. We need a self-examination, a self-confrontation to take place in our hearts. Looking at ourselves first removes the log in our own eye in judging and mistreating another person. And instead, it lets our sinful nature fall aside to not get the best of us. And in, in, in doing so, that we would rather learn to listen, learn to love, learn to appreciate the differences in another person's life, who they are as image bearers. We shouldn't resent them for being different from us, right? Isn't that the gospel, though? All nations, all distinctions, all types of people gathering together, right? 
it's not everyone looking like each other that makes us Christian. We need to learn how to be kind and loving and patient towards them. Nevertheless, our differences can actually lead to sin, right? Sometimes we just don't like that other person. Our Enneagram doesn't match up, whatever that means, and your personality clashes with the other person, and you do something hurtful, sinful. When sin becomes hatred in our heart for another person, we are sinning against our brother and sister. But let us be clear on, the, on this topic here. This is not about hurting someone's feelings or being annoyed with another person. It's not about someone having an off-putting personality, right? Like, like, like I said, the Enneagram personalities is conflicting in your life. And you can only hang out with that person because that's, he's like a seven or whatever, you know? No, this conflict is when someone is clearly and consistent, consistently treating you contrary to Christ's commands. The, the law of Christ, the law of love. Sin is the issue. When this happens, God's word says we must lovingly go. The word is go to the believer in private. We initiate. Notice how this takes the place within God's family. This step is probably one of the most helpful steps that we can all do. However, it's one of the most neglected when it comes to conflict resolution, right? We all hesitate to go because let's be honest, when another person has wronged us, we like to talk about them instead of talking to them, do we not? We go in secrecy to other people in different social gatherings and we speak about the other person. I can't believe they did that. Can you believe what they did or what they said? As one commentator said, we like to sit and sulk. Not only that, but our pride even says, I'll wait for them to, to come to me. You know, they need to come to me. Right? They're the ones that wrong me. They need to come and say, I'm sorry. They need to come and, and, and apologize. Or sometimes we just give them the cold shoulder, right? We're just like, hey, next time I see them, I'm not even going to look at them. I'm just going to walk past them, act like they don't even, they're not even alive. Like they're not even in the same room. Or I like this one. This one happens to me quite often. I don't know why, but I get unfollowed. Anyone get unfollowed? Someone has beef. You don't even know you have beef. But all of a sudden, in your social media, you, you realize that someone unfollowed you. And you're like, wait, I haven't seen that guy's feet. And you go on there and you're like, man, he unfollowed me. And you're like, that's so bizarre. That's, that's the real cold shoulder nowadays. Yet our Lord says something different, does he not? He says, go and approach our offender in private. Why should we do this in private? Well, for one, no one likes to be humiliated in public. No one likes to feel under attack. And second, if you go to them in private, it actually fosters a real conversation, right? 
you pull them aside and say, hey, I just want to talk to you. There's no one around. No one's judging what we're asking, what we're talking about. Just you and me. Let's talk about what happened. Doing it this way creates a dialogue. Therefore, we shouldn't just go in God's blazing, right? Condemning them and, and, and for what they did or what they said to us, making them feel disgraceful or, or like they're not good enough. Rather, it's all about acknowledging a wrong and calling them to turn from it. We then should be gentle in our words, asking thoughtful questions about a certain situation and, and seeking clarity about what they said or what they did. Have you ever approached a conversation like that? Instead of saying, you did this, you'd be like, hey, you know that one time when we were talking and you, you said that one thing or you, you said that about me? Like, yeah, that, that wasn't right, you know? And, and I kind of wanted to address that. Like, where is that? Is that coming from something? Did I do something wrong to you to cause you to feel that way against me? You know, and it's like, oh, wow, that's, that's a real conversation. We're not going in guns blazing, but we're having a private conversation. And this private conversation is not necessarily about how we feel, right? Rather, it's about what God has said and how he has called us to live. And so when someone is living contrary to what God has said and called us to live, then we go to them. Because Scripture tells us to do this. Our aim of doing all of this is to lovingly win our brother back to the Lord and to us. That's the whole aim. It's not to be right in the conversation. It's not to win or or to be dominant over people when we correct them. It's to win them. It's to cause forgiveness to take place. For them to turn from their sin. Because it's constantly happening in their life. It's a, 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 a habit that has formed. All of us. All of us should be willing and open to this kind of conversation, this kind of correction in our life, right? I mean, we'd all say yes. After all, we do confess that we all still need grace, that we all still fall short every day. And that means we even fall short in our relationships with other people. So biblically speaking, we should be open to receiving any correction, right? The wise person does that. The fool gets mad. The fool turns his back. However, not all Christians are open to listening and being corrected, are they? Jesus says when someone rejects us privately, you must take it a step further. Number two, take someone with you. Pretty practical. Our Lord says if he does not listen, take one or two others among, along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. We have established the goal in confronting someone who has sinned against us by winning them over to cause forgiveness to take place and reconciliation to be established in our relationships with them. Yet, when our first step fails, because sometimes it, it fails, even though this is, that would be the best situation, that's the best conflict resolution. When that fails, 
we must bring one or two witnesses with us. This principle is actually taken out of the Old Testament law of Moses, right? In Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. These witnesses are assumed to have seen the offense take place in a public, uh, in a public setting. However, when the offense happened in private, because sometimes it happens between two people and there's not witnesses around, these witnesses actually can ensure that the conflict gets resolved in a healthy way. Kent Hughes, a commentator that I love reading, and if you want to pick up a commentary, pick up his, uh, gives us three reasons to uh, have witnesses go with us. First, that they can, sh- uh, can make sure the accusation is true. That the accusation that is brought to uh, them is true and there's no falsehood in it. Sometimes, as we know, people like to exaggerate what happened in conflicts, right? They, they tell a little bit more to the story to make maybe them seem a little bit better in the story or in the narrative. But a second pair of eyes or a, a second pair of ears on the situation can bring a certain clarity to the problem. With that said, we must pray that the, the truth will come to light and that God will give us wisdom to discern what really happened, right? We must use discernment. Second, these individuals can help assist uh, for resolution to take place. These witnesses can help the offended and injured party come to a resolution. Their aim, like ours, is to win back people uh, to Jesus, to call them to walk in the light of the gospel, right? To not, no longer walk in darkness, but to walk in light. Therefore, these believers who help assess and aid the situation should be seasoned, right? And I'm not talking about they need to be gray hairs. I'm not talking about age here. I'm talking about maturity, that they must be gentle, that they must be able to give biblical counsel, Right? To use the scriptures in a healthy way. Perhaps it's even best to have someone who knows both parties to come into the situation so there's no biased feel to what is going on. That he knows both of them and, and he's going to use that in a practical way to resolve the issue. There's no ganging up on that individual. Notice that there's no command here, though, to treat the the one who has offended as a non-believer, right? We don't treat them as if they're, you know, sinful and, and unrepentive, yet we go to them trying to gain clarity on the situation. This means that he or she is given a time to explain themselves, right? To present their case of what has transpired. Because we know that there's always two sides to the story. That's wisdom. Hear both sides of the story before you make a call. Third, they are to be a witness if the matter goes before the church. If there is no repentance and forgiveness, the person listens and rejects what they're hearing and does not seek forgiveness, they will be the ones who go and testify. To them before the church, that there was an attempt made 
to cause resolution or restoration, but this person, being hardened in their heart or stiff-necked, did not want to come to a resolution. Again, within this step, we're hoping and praying that the situation would get resolved. But if it doesn't, Jesus says we must take it another step. He says, get the church involved, which is interesting. Now, to be honest with you, I've always read this as, you know, meaning go, go tell your leader, right? Go tell your pastor. But Jesus says if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Who's the church? It's everyone. It's everyone in the church. It's in this third step that Jesus finally says that the church and the leaders are to get involved in the situation. They are supposed to take up matters for themselves. And some people would actually say at this point, the transition of priority, is, it's no longer in your possession, but the church takes it from you and says, no, this is, this is a church issue now. This person walking in sin and unrepentive, meaning they're not turning away from their sin, is now a matter of the body. This tells us that the step one and two are not required for pastors, right? Or leaders to enter into the conversation yet, but we must try to resolve the conflict without going to them first. Personally, being a pastor or a leader in the church, a lot of people like to skip this step with me, right? They, they come up to me and they're like, I'm having issues. This person did this to me. And they're, they're, really, they're really seeking wisdom. But in some ways, I feel at times they're wanting me to do something about it. And my heart's to do something about it. But when I look at 18, my response is this. Have you gone to that person yet? Have you talked to them about it? Because if you haven't, then we're not talking anymore. Right? And that goes for you guys as well. You guys are the church. So when someone comes to you and they're talking smack about another person, they have beef, and they're not, they're not willing to go to them in private, you tell them, hey, I, this conversation is done. Like, my wisdom to you is what Jesus says here in Matthew 18, go to them in private. Talk with them. If not, then I'll come with you. They don't, if, if they did something to you, and they sinned against you, and they're unrepented, they, they're not seeking forgiveness in, in the situation, then we'll come and we'll talk with them. But before we go any further... Go and, and, and talk to your brother or sister. Nevertheless, when someone has gone to all these biblical steps and still there is unrepentance, meaning there's no turning from sin, it now becomes, like I said, a whole church matter. Through the years, and especially in today's world, this step has been looked at at being unkind, unfair. Why, why in the world... Would anyone go and tell the whole church what I did to you? Right? We may even be tempted to, to ask, why go and tell the whole church? Can't, can, can't we just keep this in, in, in privacy? Well, to be fair, this is the, actually, this is the most loving thing we can do for anyone who's in sin. That we would, we would use all our efforts, all our pleas for them to turn 
to Christ. What is most fascinating about these words is that they come right after Jesus' parable of the sheep who who goes astray. Did you guys see that? Look in your Bibles, Matthew 18. Starting in verse 12, he says, Does he, meaning the shepherd, not leave the 99 from the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Does this not reveal the Father's heart? His relentless relentless love for any of his children who have become lost. It's interesting. It's from that passage that he goes into conflict resolution. The one who is in sin. The one who is lost. The one who has gone astray. Will God not pursue them? Will he not go after the one? Verse 14 says, It is not the Father's will that one of these little ones, or better yet, the translation would be one of these believers, because we're all children of God, should perish. Let this verse settle in our hearts for a moment. You know what this tells us? God cares for us. God cares for you. <laughs> even when you're rebellious, even when you're, you can't find forgiveness in your heart, that you've gone astray, that he has relentless love for you. So much so that he's willing to take an army of Christians to pursue you, a whole church, a whole community of people to restore you back to himself. It is here that we are reminded of our Lord's words of who he is to us. He is the good shepherd who says this in John 10, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And not one of them will be snatched from my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. God's steadfast love brings comfort to us all. That when we are veering off, from the truth, or when we're wandering away, seeking our own will, doing our own thing, neglecting God in our life. Because guess what? We, we do wander. We're prone to wander. Yet we have a loving shepherd who comes to rescue, to restore us, to himself. Thus, when the church comes together to lovingly confront a believer, they are in essence doing it with the mind and heart of Jesus himself, who desires no one to be lost. Think about that for a moment. 
when you're confronting someone who has sinned against you? Are you acting as Christ acted? Are you being loving and kind? Sadly, though God's heart and His church is for sinners to be restored, people love their sin. Right? The Bible says men love darkness. People love darkness and they're unwilling to turn from it. Which brings us to our fourth and final point. Treat them as a non-believer. Jesus says if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, if the conflict is not resolved, then the church is to handle the person as if they do not believe in the gospel. Something is wrong. They have missed something about what Christ has done. They are not bearing truth in their life. This verse is famously actually known as the mandate for excommunication. And guess what? It's not an option. It's a command. We are responsible as the church to enact this within our community if someone is unrepented. One misconception of this verse is that we are to treat the person poorly. That's not what it's saying. Jesus is not saying to treat the individual poorly. We must remember what Jesus did to sinners when he was in his earthly ministry. That he ate with them and that he walked with them and that he welcomed them in. But let me ask you this. How do you treat a non-believer? Do you treat them poorly? Or do you treat them lovingly? Well, I hope that you treat them lovingly because you, you want to lovingly win them over. We don't resent them and, and, and think poorly of them and push them away even though we stop doing certain things with them. Because in one sense, we can't pretend like everything's all right. Because not everything is all right. We care about their soul and their eternity. And so we're consistently calling and encountering them, hopefully, that they would turn from their sin. We're sharing the gospel with them. We're implanting the seeds of the gospel into their life. 2 Thessalonians 3.15 says, not regarding them as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Interesting. So why must we remove someone from fellowship? What benefit is it to us and the church? Well, excommunication is healthy. First, because it warns us. It warns us of sin. Sin is a big deal if you haven't known this yet. Sin is not something that we should lightly tread with. So much so that we see that Christ comes to rescue sinners because of sin. Jesus comes and he dies for us because of our sin, which has separated us from God. There was no other way for us to be restored to God. We had a conflict resolution with God, right? 
where we were stiff-necked and unforgiving, and yet Christ came and died for sinners. He first loved us, and then we loved him. When we remove someone from the church, it allows the sinner, the one who's being removed, to see the gravity of their sin. To say, hey, yeah, you know, sin is actually a big deal. And I really need to rethink what I'm doing here. Because this is not working out. Things are happening in my life. The people who love me are telling me something that that I'm doing something wrong. And so I need to really reflect in this moment. And remember the cross. Second, it protects the sheepfold from letting more sin in. As someone once said, sin is like cancer, is it not? We are then to cut it off so that it doesn't spread to the whole body. See, cancer will move from one member to another. Sin will move from one sinner or member to another. One way of doing this, one way of cutting off sin is exposing it, right? That's our first step is to privately expose it. And then if it's not dealt with there, then we publicly expose it. This is how we cut off sin. We bring it to light. Thirdly, removing sin from the body purifies the church. As we are called to follow Jesus, we are actually committing ourselves to pursue holiness. Did you know that? That this is not all fun and games. It's not all about just networking and having something to do on a Friday night. No, in this setting, our, our pursuit and our aim is for holiness. For God has called us to be holy just as he is holy. This is not only a personal thing. This is a communal thing, right? Together we are helping each other pursue Jesus. Right? Pursue Christ and cultivate a gospel community is what I said in the very beginning. And so what does that look like? It means that we hold each other accountable. That we expose sin in each other's lives. That we call each other out in loving, in a loving manner, speaking truth in love. That in doing so, there's sanctification happening in the person's life. We're being set apart from sin and we're being called to pursue holiness together. That is what we're doing here. That is what God is calling us to pursue. Lastly, removing sin is a good witness for the gospel. John Lehman, a a man who has written a lot about church discipline and the church in general, he says it helps to preserve the attractive distinctiveness of God's people. Think about it for a moment. When there's a church that sins rampantly and they do nothing about it, who really wants to go to that church? Actually, they're more like the world, are they not? They might be worshiping and and talking about God's love, but they're blind to what the scriptures say to pursue holiness. They only take in what they want. 
and they let everyone else around them live however they please. That is not a gospel community. That is not a pursuit of holiness. When we live in this way, when we expose darkness and we live in the light and we pursue holiness together, we remain salty. We remain the light that is on the hill that the world can see us and the non-believer can see that we are distinctively different from them. If we fail to take sin seriously, we will start looking more and more like the world and the world will not want to even be around us. See, if we become more like the world, we become less like a holy temple of God. At the end of the day, confronting conflict with someone in the church is not easy. Many times we fear, actually, right? We, we fear the outcome of what they'll say or what they'll do or what their response will be. Or maybe we're nervous and we've never done this before. So fear comes in and we're like, ah, I'd rather just not do it. And even if we lovingly go through all these steps... There will be some that still say, who do you think you are? You're not God. You can't call me out. Look how you're living. You're not living perfect. Let me do me. Yet with with that objection, Jesus leaves no room for it. He says at the end in, in Matthew 18, verse Uh, 18, he says, whatever you bind on earth is already bound bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Simply put, Jesus says the church does not speak on his own authority. They speak on my authority. They reassert what I have already said from heaven. That is what Jesus is simply saying. We are obligated by the authority of Christ, by his word, to not let people think that they are going to heaven while still sinning on earth, unrepentively. That is the most unloving thing we could do, is just let them walk all the way, thinking they're okay with God, all the way, road to destruction, all the way, to find out in the end they were never good with God. Yet the Lord is gracious. He's gracious, but he does not accommodate our sin. He's dealt with our sin. And guess what? Grace only comes to those who confess sin. Repent of it. Turn from it. And turn to God. Turn to Christ. In closing, tonight God is extending his grace to you. The question before us all tonight is, do you have any relationships that need resolving? Then go resolve them. Before you even enter into the house of worship, go and make amends with your brother. Perhaps you've sinned against another Christian, and after hearing Jesus' words, you want to seek forgiveness. Go. Seek it. Be restored. 
in realizing your sin and your shortcoming is your first step. Your next step is to go to your brother. So go. The word of God says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32. This may be painful, but do not despair. The Lord is working in your life. And guess what? Our community will be a better place if you do so. However, maybe you are here tonight and you have been refusing to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus. Yet something changed in your life tonight. In your heart, you know that God is calling you to himself. That you had a self-realization, a self-confrontation took place with you and God. And you realize who Christ is, what he has done for you, that he's forgiven your sin through the cross, and that you can have eternal life in heaven. Then I ask in the quietness of your heart that you would confess and believe in the Lord. The Bible says all who do this will be saved. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and God, we ask that now as we receive your word, that you would help us be doers of your word. That, Lord, you would give us power, that you would give us wisdom, that, Lord, we would go and resolve our conflicts with one another. That, Lord, in doing so, holiness would take place. That our communities would look different. And that, God, the world would see that Christianity, that the community of God is a different kind of people, a distinct people, a diverse people, but a people of truth, a people of love, a people of restoration, and a people of, of reconciliation with one another. And so, Lord, as we go into this last song as we expose our hearts to you and you're calling us to do what we need to do Lord would we sing your praise would we lift your name on high would we enjoy this moment it's in Jesus name I pray amen